Everybody, it is Saturday night. Whew, already October the 9th, year 2010. I'm Walden Hughes, and hello, Patricia. Hi, Walden. I can barely hear you. Are you plugged into your board correctly? Nope, I, I am. Let me just turn you up, Patricia. You okay, that would be great. Hi, everybody. Um, that was, as most of you probably know, the Ballad of Paladin which is um, familiar, and most of you will recognize that it comes from television's Have Gun, Will Travel, the series that ran in the late 1950s and early 60s. The artist who wrote and sang what I am calling an indelible ballad for the first time in 1958 
uh, and it became his signature song, is Johnny Western. And Johnny is here with us tonight. Johnny, welcome to Yesterday USA and our show tonight, and I'm just so happy to be able to say hi. Patricia, thank you very much. It's great to be with you and the whole gang, Walden and everybody out there, wherever you may be listening. Uh, everybody you. is out there, um, and they are listening from here to Hawaii. We know of that. Um, we may have some people in other countries. We usually do, but they haven't given us a call. But all the way down to Hawaii, they have given us a call. I would like to, with your permission, give you a proper introduction, but we don't have an entire week, so I had to, I had to bring this down to, to a snapshot. I mean, my goodness, I, I keep saying this is a short list, this is a short list, and I keep going to page two, page three, <laughs> but I'd like to just give a rundown of um, who you are, what you have been doing during your career, and uh, you can hop in and tell me if I'm telling any lies along here. Well, you just go ahead and start. Okay, I will just go ahead and then you tell me, wait, wait, that's not true. I want to start with the signature ballad because really it has become your signature. I guess it was your signature very quickly. Um, Have Gun Will Travel, a theme, uh, the Ballad of Paladin has, or Have Gun Will Travel, the show itself has been seen in 78 foreign countries, you said, in addition to the United States, um, which means you have been heard or are being heard in 78 different countries. How many languages? Oh, just about everything that you can think of, non-English. I mean, from oh, exactly. Japanese to I saw the show in German. I've seen it in French uh, when I was in Japan during the Vietnam War, entertaining troops over there at the bases. I did get to see a, an episode of it over there with a, a, a samurai-type voice in Japanese doing Richard Boone's voice. Oh my. So it's, it's been an amazing thing. They've estimated from CBS television that, of course, the origin of the show, that I was playing to somewhere near 350 million people a week <laughs> around a the week? world. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that many people could watch television. <laughs> well, <clears throat> it's an amazing thing. The media, of course, when television was in this particular format and the Westerns were so popular and... Most in black and white in those days, of course, nobody cared about that because television color was in such an infancy mm -hmm. that everybody was pretty much linked to the black and white thing, and that just made it universal. So it was out there for the world to see, and the beauty part of it is that most of those countries have collection agencies like BMI and ASCAP, which are the <laughs> collection agencies for royalties here, and to this day I'm still receiving royalties from all those countries. Well, to this day, you have a lot of people out here who would have gone to bat for you if you were not. Uh, well, that's a nice thought. <laughs> but I am. We're just having a whole lot of fun with your work. Now, if I remember correctly, and, and then I want to go through a list here, if I remember correctly, you told me that the song never changes. No matter which country it's in, your voice is heard. Yes, there's a great fascination for American music throughout the world. And so although Richard Boone's voice as Paladin was dubbed in many, many languages, nobody ever fooled with the song. The same Ballad of Paladin heard here, even today, on the Encore Western Channel, which is on five days a week, twice a day, it's the same soundtrack that played around the world and has continued to play around the world for five decades. I love it. I love it. Now, you're going to have to help us fill in between uh, the beginning and Gene Autry. I'm going to ask you some questions with that. But as a quick synopsis, you spent two years on tour with Gene Autry, 1956 and 57, right. which were his two final years. Is that correct? Pretty much. You know, he was such an astute businessman that he was phasing out his show business career. He did a few shows after, after we parted company that kind of came along, including a very short and 
not a good tour to Cuba right at the time when Castro was coming in. It was not a good thing, and I did not make that tour, and I'm kind of glad I didn't. But I was there for the finale of one of the greatest careers in the history of show business, and, of course, I never would have been in the business at all without Gene Autry. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that, too. You've got a fabulous story about how you first met him, and it was most unusual, too. You also spent 30 years on tour with Johnny Cash. No. I spent 39 years and 11 months on the road with you Johnny Cash, saw... almost 40. Like I mean, one month of being 40 years. I have to tell you, I saw 40 years and 30 years, and I counted on my fingers, <laughs> and I said, it's got to be 30 years. <laughs> no, it was, you know, we were both young and tough and having a great time and living in Southern California. When he moved out there and bought Johnny Carson's show, a house, he decided to, to put a, a road show together from California instead of Memphis, where he had headquartered before. Uh -huh. And I worked three dates with him in Sacramento, Fresno, and Bakersfield, California, the first week of November 1958. And I thought, this is going to look wonderful on the resume. You know, we were both recording for Columbia Records and had television credits and so forth, but had not had a chance to work together before. Well, <clears throat> three days turned out to be almost 40 years. Well, I'm going to ask you how that came about, too. This is just incredible. 25 years as a Western and country Western disc jockey. Right. And I just finished that, as a matter of fact, on April the 10th, at one of the greatest country music operations in the, the world, and it happens to be right in the center of the country in Wichita, Kansas. I had known the owners of the station for a long, long time, and it appeared for them in other venues around the country, but uh, they made me the famous offer I couldn't refuse as Cash was winding down his career and so forth, and I was had been on the road for just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles. They offered me a stock ownership in a great country music corporation with 15 radio stations, the headquarters being Wichita, and the ability to keep on touring with Johnny and Waylon Jennings and, and the people that I really wanted to tour with in the business, and then come back and get on the air and tell everybody where we had been, what we were doing, how big the crowds were, and kind of identify with that who the guest stars were, whether it was... Uh, the top girl singer at the time, like Patsy Cline, or whether it was George Jones or whoever. So it was the very best of two worlds, and I loved it for 25 years. Well, I'm out of breath, and I'm not even halfway through my list yet. Well, keep so going, lady. <laughs> um, I'll make breakfast. Um, 25 years, and you, you retired, as I understand it, you retired from the DJ business in April. That's correct. The 10th but day of April on a Saturday was my last day. I did not retire from doing concerts throughout the world. In fact, since that time, I've done several and are going again. Uh, this past weekend, I was in Wilcox, Arizona for the 59th annual Rex Allen Days, honoring my, my mentor in the music business, the great Rex Allen Sr., who was my mentor for 50 years. And now I get to tour all over the world with his son, who is a great singer, Rex Allen Jr., who, of course, is very familiar to a lot of people for the eight years he was on the Statler Brothers TV show on TNN, the Nashville Network, and many other shows as well, but had his own TV show called Yesteryear for a couple of years, produced by the Statler Brothers and, and Marshall Grant. So it's kind of what goes around, comes around, Patricia. I spent so much of my life with Rex Allen Sr. Now I tour all over the world with Rex Allen Jr., and it's a lot of fun. It must be because you're still doing it. This well, I've enjoyed every minute of it all this time. I've been the luckiest guy in the world who started so young and keep on going. You know, it's just been a blessing. It's been one for us, too. And I, I think you understood when I explained to you how you and I got in touch with each other. One of our listeners asked 
for the radio theme song. The DJ who sent it also sent the television theme song. I said, this is so great. Somebody needs to say thank you. And I sent a thank you, and here we are. And I'm, here we are. Uh, and here we are. Somebody needs to say thank you a lot more often than we do. Okay. After, uh, before Gene Autry, you were, you were doing work with the Sons of the Pioneers. Is that correct? I got very, very lucky. They uh, were coming through the area, which is southern Minnesota, where I was pretty much raised. My hometown is Northfield, Minnesota, where Jesse James and the Younger Brothers got shot to pieces in 1876 trying to take the bank there. <laughs> so I grew up with that, with that particular history as a very, very young man. Uh, I was not born there. I was born up on the north shore of Minnesota. My dad was an officer in the CCC camps during the Roosevelt years and the Depression. And uh, so my actual start was in northern Minnesota, but the majority of my life before going to Hollywood was in southern Minnesota. And the Sons of the Pioneers were touring through that area and going on a summertime tour, and I lucked out and got a chance to tour with them all summer, the summer of 1952. And, of course, they were the greatest Western singing group in the history of our business and still are to this day. After more than 75 years in the business, they are the absolute top-of-the-line Western group in the world. Well, you won't find too many arguments from our audience on that. We all love them, too. Well, anybody that's ever listened to Cool Water and Tumbling Tumbleweeds and uh -huh. the great Bob Nolan songs and the songs that they've been associated with through the years and their exceptional harmony know that there has kind of been everybody that's in the business today, the great writers in the Sky, the Sky Group, or the Sons of the San Joaquin, almost any musical group in the world will tell you that their heroes and idols are the Sons of the Pioneers, and many will say we wouldn't even be in the business without the Sons of the Pioneers. Is that so true? it was a great, great great thrill and honor to go on the road with those guys when I was 16, 17 years old. I mean, this was just the epitome of, of uh, you know, being on the rodeo circuit and playing for large crowds with the greatest Western singing group in the world. What were you doing with them? Well, <laughs> I was saying, it was just a kind of a, a neat thing. You know, I was a solo performer, oh, and okay. uh, but they worked me into their show, and of course, this was a great, great heyday because they had been doing uh, all the Roy Rogers movies for so many years mm -hmm. at Republic Pictures. And, of course, Roy Rogers, as I'm sure most everybody's familiar, was a founding father of the Sons of the Pioneers, originally called the Pioneer Trio, along with the great Bob Nolan and the great Tim Spencer. They were the Pioneer Tri Trio back in 1933 in Hollywood in Los Angeles area, and they did some touring across the Southwest. And then they got a break on a big radio station in Los Angeles, and they added... Two brothers from Texas, Hugh Farr on the fiddle and Carl Farr on the guitar. So it made a five-man group. And uh, their announcer one day said, you know, you guys, this pioneer thing is okay, but you're much too young to be pioneers. I'm just going to call you the sons of the pioneers. And it stuck. And they, over a 75, 76-year period, have become the number one name in all of Western music in the group category. Wow. I knew that they had a significant influence in that particular genre. I had no idea how much. They are huge throughout the world. In fact, there was a great statement made by a longtime friend of mine who passed away eight years ago. I'm calling and talking to you from Mesa, Arizona, and this great friend of mine who introduced me to my wife, Joe, 44 years ago, was named Waylon Jennings. Waylon Jennings was a dear, dear friend, and it just so happened that the second day that I was performing with him in the Phoenix and Scottsdale area, he introduced me to my wife, and it took, and 44 years later, this past August the 9th was our 44th anniversary, 
we're still doing it and still hanging in there. Since my retirement in Wichita, we've come back to what was her hometown of Mesa, Arizona, which is nearly a half million people now. And it's a big suburb of Phoenix, for those that listening along the line that might know something about, but maybe not all about Mesa. And Waylon Jennings once made a statement. He said, you know, the CMA Awards last three hours long on the network. He said, I can cut that down to three minutes. He said, I think that the Best Male Singer Award should go every year to George Jones. The Best Group Award should go every year to the Sons of the Pioneers. Pick out whatever girl singer, Loretta Lynn or Tammy Wynette or whoever you like that particular year. Give her the Best Singer Award. And then close the doors. Over and you can save with... two hours and 57 minutes. <laughs> Over and but the Sons of the Pioneers five. were so important that Waylon Jennings said they should get the, vocal, the Group Vocalist of the Year Award every year, no matter yes. how long it went on. Every year. That Every is year. incredible. Well, yes, we, we know a little bit about Phoenix because one of our DJs is in Phoenix. Lynn Noyes is out there. And he's um, saying, oh, boy, is he performing here? Is he performing here? So we're going to get a list of um, where your performances are, the ones that are coming up before we finish up tonight. All right. Um, you have, as I read, I've had parts in more than 30 different television shows. Is that correct? Yes, I did a, a total of um, 32 television westerns back when the westerns were the big thing. You know, the, mm -hmm. the eras that started with the adult westerns, which was Gunsmoke in September of 1955, and that era continued big time until nine, 1962 with about 10 western series on CBS every week. There were 11 on ABC and 10 on NBC television. It was kind of a standing joke about how many westerns were on TV. Uh, Bob Hope was, was under contract to NBC. He said, folks, now NBC means nothing but cowboys. <laughs> and, of course, with Bonanza and all the great shows that were on NBC, Tales of Wells Fargo with Dale Robertson and so many wonderful shows, that wasn't too far off the mark. Wow. I, gosh. That's amazing. You And it sounds like you were in almost all of them at one point or another. Well, it was just a, a lucky thing. You know, having been with Gene Autry during that period of time and him being so big, he put me with his his movie agent when he retired, mm. a wonderful guy named Mitch Hamelberg. And Hamelberg had such a, a great clout in Hollywood that uh, once I got started, I kind of went from picture to picture to picture because there were so many going on. And with the help of the name of Gene Autry behind me and Mitch Hamelberg fronting for me, I, you know, I just kind of got lucky, and, and as the casting directors got to know who I was, they said, well, you know, this kid would be okay for this part, and so forth, and it kind of worked out that right around that same time, there was a kid named Michael Landon, who was just about my age, and we ended up trading parts. One week, I would do a Wells Fargo with Dale Robertson, and maybe two weeks later, Michael would do, and then next six, six or eight months, I'd come back and do one, and, and Michael would do another one. In fact, a very strange thing, a man named David Dortort passed away just a couple of weeks ago at age 93. He was the creator of Bonanza, and I had done some things on the same lot over there at Paramount, and David Dortort, through Frank Gruber, the great Western author who created Tales of Wells Fargo, took a look at me for the part of Little Joe on Bonanza. And I went over there and talked to him a couple, two or three times, and then finally Mr. Dortort said, you know, kid, he said, we're going to go with Michael Landon. We think he looks a lot more like Lauren Green than you do. Which is absolutely true. Michael did get to look a lot like Lauren Green. You think about Bonanza, he looked more like Lauren, of course, than either Adam Cartwright, the late Parnell Roberts, 
which is the last living member of the Bonanza crew until a few months ago, and, of course, Dan Blocker, who didn't look like anybody except Dan Blocker. Mm -hmm. But Michael Landon did look like Lauren Green, looked very much like he could have been his son. And, in fact, they developed that kind of relationship the years that that show was filming. They were very close. as kind of a, an alternate father and son deal. Did you ever appear on Bonanza? Never did. As a matter of fact, after the, the tryouts and so forth, um, I don't know whether it's a matter of bad timing, but I never did a, a Bonanza once uh, Michael got that part. Sounds like the only show you didn't appear in. Well, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful time. So many of the shows that I did were filmed at Paramount, which, of course, included Gunsmoke and Have Gun, Will Travel. And I was doing a television series for 13 weeks up in Kanab, Utah, which is called Little Hollywood. Uh, the great locations, the great backgrounds, and they had built a, a cavalry fort up there and a western town. In fact, my wife and I were just up there a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, they have gone into disarray, and there was a fire in the western town over the years. But I spent weeks and weeks and weeks on location up there doing a show called Boots and Saddles back in 1957-58, the story of the 5th Cavalry. And I had a running part in that series for 13 weeks. And we came back to Hollywood and did the, the interiors there at uh, these subsidiary studios of Paramount on Melrose Avenue called California National. So running all and going from one thing to another to another, I was the luckiest young guy in the world to get to work with all these great stars like Dale Robertson, who I still stay in touch with to this day. He lives on a ranch outside of Oklahoma City in Yukon, Oklahoma. And uh, he's 86 years old now, but I'm still staying in touch with him. So, you know, I was just the luckiest guy in the world to get to play cowboy and, and cowboys and Indians and get paid a lot of money to do it. And you're still doing it. I, I'm really sorry that you hated this so much as you were um, moving through your life. It must have been very difficult to do something that you just had such a hard time staying with. <laughs> I, I just felt like I was so very, very lucky. Being a little, little boy with these wild dreams up in a place that was kind of non-cowboy, like northern Minnesota, yeah. and then dreaming of being a movie cowboy like Gene Autry, and then having these things happen to me through the years has just been the most wonderful book of memories anybody could imagine. My gosh, you made most of them happen. Um, you keep saying lucky, 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 but we all know that it's a whole lot more than lucky, lucky, lucky. Okay, you had your own TV show. Did I read that correctly? In, in Minnesota, yes, uh -huh. before I went to Hollywood. That was what I was doing. I was doing a daily radio show in the afternoon and a TV show just before news time for an hour, six days a week. And I, these were live shows. And, of course, I was uh, I had a horse on the TV show with me. And the uh, idea well, it was basically was to sing a few songs, pitch the sponsored product, and um, then play a Western movie. And the Westerns, of course, those movies became kind of public domain after a certain area. <laughs> they used to say it around that time when television was first getting started that most of the movies were either early American or old English <laughs> because they didn't have to pay royalties for them, you know. Uh -huh. Long story short, that was a, a great, great way to get my foot in the door. However, it did not mean a thing when I got to Hollywood. I went to Hollywood when I was 19. I'd had two years of live television, six days a week, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of radio shows since I was 14 years old and started in radio, and it didn't mean a thing in Hollywood. All they wanted to know was, what have you got on film? What can I see? I said, nothing. That's why I'm here. I want to get a film. <laughs> and finally, a wonderful casting director by the name of Lynn Stallmaster, who was a great casting director for Gunsmoke and the other shows that I've mentioned to you, Have Gun, Will Travel, and Boots and Saddles, and so forth, gave me a shout on a, a pilot of a new Western 
it didn't sell right away, but it was a step in through the door. It was a show called Pony Express, and I played the lead Pony Express rider. I had had horses nearly all my life, and I was a good rider and fit the part. Once I got through the door with that first one, I went from picture to picture to picture to show to show to show and really got lucky there because, as I said, the rash of westerns was there, and I got to do a lot of them with some of my favorite people in the world. So there again, a luck out. Maybe the right place at the right time. Certainly was in the right time for the Westerns because there were more than 30 of them on the air. Walk me through a typical audition for a cowboy show in that time. There were many kind of auditions. I got some parts. I've got the part on Have Gun Will Travel because I'd already been on Gunsmoke and, of course, doing the Boots and Saddles thing, and they're also cast by Lynn Stallmaster. And I said to him one day, as Richard Boone was coming and going off the lot, and I'd been over visiting on his set, which is just three sets down from ours, and I said, you know something, Lynn, if you ever get a part of kind of a showy young would-be gunfighter going up against Paladin, I sure would like to have a shot at that. He said, I'll keep that in mind. Well, about two weeks later, he came in and said, you're not going to believe this. He said, that that you were talking about has just come up. And he said, it's going to be in a show that is going to be a second show for June Lockhart. Of course, everybody remembers his Lassie's mother. And it was a show about a lady doctor uh, on a ranch out there with a smallpox epidemic. And he said, there's a showy part in this thing about this young kind of whippersnapper young gunfighter, I think he's a gunfighter, going up again against uh, Richard Boone as Paladin. And I got that part without even auditioning for it. However, with the Pony Express thing, the very first thing that I ever did, there were probably 50 or 60 different actors that they auditioned for that. And sometimes you go down there what they call a cattle call, and you might look at 10 or 12 or 15 guys just about your age and your size that are all trying out for the same part. And that's when the sweat breaks out on your forehead and you say, I'm not going to get this thing. You know, some of those kids I recognized from film, they'd had film parts. And I said, well, they're going to give it to that guy. You know, they've never seen me. They're going to give, as it was, Frank Rosenberg, the producer, did give me that part. And once I got through the door, it just rolled. What did you do differently during auditions that you think made a difference in your landing the roles? I think maybe they could see that I wanted it so bad and I could do it. They did not have to get a stuntman for me. You know, sometimes young actors uh, could not ride. They couldn't physically do the part. They're good good actors, maybe a stage actor from New York or Chicago, mm-hmm. but they were not geared to do the whole thing. Now, you had very limited budgets in those days for the TV shows, and if they had to give a speaking actor a stuntman and pay double so the guy could even get on and off his horse and ride 20 feet out of camera range, that cost them a lot of money. And with yours truly, I could do it all. I just lucked out that I was a good rider. I could do the physical things, love to do it. I probably would have paid them to do it, but actually they were paying me. And that got me through the door with some places where some of the New York actors couldn't get. So you brought Mark to the table. I did, because I loved it so much, and it, it had been my life. You know, it was just a, just a thing where at that time, and you're dealing with a product that I knew backwards and forwards because I studied it. 24 hours a day. I mean, I loved playing cowboy and getting paid for it, but I knew what made a Western click, whether it was television or feature. And when I got there, I just gave it my best shot. And some of these casting directors began to pick up, you know, on the fact that I could do it. And I did get repeat jobs in some of the biggest shows out there. What was your favorite show to work with? Probably... Well, of course, working with Richard Boone and that original thing that just tripped so many triggers for me, uh, Richard Boone had an acting class, 
and I was too young and too inexperienced to join the acting class, but he worked with me specifically since I was doing that gunfight in in the show with him in the episode called The Return of Dr. Thackeray. And, uh, and so he worked with me like an acting student. Now, the people that he had in his class were people that you've heard of. Robert Fuller, who went on to star in the Laramie TV series, was mm-hmm. kind of Dick's pet. He was he was so proud of the progress of Robert Fuller that he called Sandy Meisner in New York City at the Neighborhood Playhouse and said, I'm sending you a good-looking kid from Southern California out here that you need to put in your acting class because this kid's going to be a big star. And on the strength of Richard Boone's saying that, Sandy Meisner put Robert Fuller in that class and came out did the Laramie TV series for several years, and of course he was a big star in a, a non-Western called Emergency, Emergency One. And then he went on to co-star with Yul Brenner in the second of the Magnificent Seven movies, replacing Steve McQueen, and stuff like that. So Bob Fuller, who is a great friend of mine to this day, uh, got that big stepping stone from Richard Boone. Another Robert in that class was a fellow I know that you've heard of named Robert Blake. Uh, Robert uh-huh. Blake is famous for a lot of things. Early on in his career, he played Little Beaver in the Red Rider TV series, well, Western series of Republic, I should say. He also Later played... on, he became Beretta on TV, the detective. Beretta with Fred, mm-hmm. the cockatoo on his shoulder. And then, of course, he became extremely famous or infamous for the famous Robert Blake murder case, the murder trial in Los Angeles, of which he was accused of murdering his wife. So, you know, it was. but there were wonderful actors like... Warren Stevens, who had done a lot of series and a lot of different things, top quality actors, some young and some older, who were in Richard Boone's class. So working with top quality people like that and having Dick Boone work directly with me on Have Gun Will Travel was probably the best acting experience that I ever had because he gave it so much craftsmanship to make sure that it was right. And it certainly has become the most talked about thing on film that I ever did. He had a style that was one of a kind. I won't use the word unique because it's overused, but it really was one of a kind. There was no one who could emulate him, and yet you're telling me he was teaching you and others. What did you learn specifically from him that you have carried with you? I think things like dignity and timing are here's the deal. People have asked me through the years, and I've got, I've got 52 years of background with Richard Boone and, and the show, and as I said, continuing on now with a whole new group of people that are watching it on the Encore Western Channel five days a week, twice a day, currently right now, every place that the uh, Western Channel is available on cable and on, on uh, the networks and so forth, and, and uh, just the dish networks, the whole thing, and they say, well, what was Paladin, what was Richard Boone like? Is this, I'd just stop it right there. I said, he was 95% like the character that you saw on TV. 95% of that was Richard Boone. The other 5%, a little theatrical bits in here and there, but he injected himself totally into that part for six years, and he was Paladin. And that was the, the joy of working with him, because he believed it 100%, maybe 125%, and made you believe it too. Now, what you did not want to do was this. If you were an amateur, and you did the best performance that you could do as an amateur, that was fine with Boone. If you were a professional and you did an amateur performance, he would get all over you like a cheap suit because he was such a wonderful professional. He just didn't want to see amateurish performances by people that could do better, that were just sloppy. So 
working with him under those conditions was absolutely fabulous, which is why I wrote the song, Patricia. I wrote it as a musical thank you card to Richard Boone, who, of course, worked with me on the show, and to Sam Rolfe, who had created the show Have Gun Will Travel with his partner, Herb, Herb Beto. Sam was very close to my age. He was in his his uh, early 30s at the time that the show was on. So he was, well, I was 23 years old. He was probably about seven years older than I was. And I identified with him, and, of course, he wrote the script that gave me that flashy gunfighter, would-be gunfighter part. So I just went down to a small recording studio after I wrote it in about 20 minutes' time and made a couple of demo records and gave one to Boone and one to Sam and said, hey, guys, thanks for having me on the show. And then they, without my knowledge, over the weekend, took those demonstration records to CBS Television in Hollywood, played them for the big honchos over there. They played them down the hotline for the big honchos in New York, and Mitch Miller at Columbia Records, and then sent me over to the studio. And when I walked out of a place 20, 30 minutes later, I had three contracts with the CBS Radio, TV, and Columbia Records Network for Have Gun Will Travel as a writer and as a singer. So, you know, this would all factor back into that great experience of working with Dick Boone. None of this would have happened, and it certainly changed my life. The story of the Ballad of Paladin is one that a lot of people would sit back and say, I don't believe that. And it's true. It is true. It is true. It is absolutely true. I had uh, been on location for several days out there at what's called Iverson's Ranch, about 40, 45 minutes out of the San Fernando Valley Mm -hmm. on a very well-known movie ranch. And my wife was expecting our number two daughter. And uh, she was overdue. So we had everybody on standby from neighbors to yellow cab in case I got trapped out at the ranch. Long story short, we finished the picture, the episode with June Lockhart, the night before about 9 o'clock. And at 7 o'clock the next morning, her water broke. And it rushed her to the hospital. Our doctor was caught in traffic, early morning traffic out in the San Fernando Valley, barely got there in time for the birthing. And, of course, in those days, I'm talking about 1958. This was the 14th day of March 1958. You could not be in the birthing room. You couldn't be in there with your video camera. You couldn't be anywhere near that. They would show you your child through a glass for about two minutes, and then you came back on visiting hours, once in the morning and once at night. So I came home. Our number one daughter, who was three years old, my mother-in-law, who was a doctor, came over and got her, and I was absolutely alone and very nervous, trying to kill time before time to go back and see the baby for the second time. And I'd had the idea of Paladin, Paladin, where do you roam far from home? Obviously, he always started out in the fancy hotel in San Francisco and the cutaway to the black suit and the, the gunfighter appearance someplace a long way from San Francisco. That part I kind of had in my mind. The next morning after I got back to the house and walking around, I was actually picked up my guitar and I started kind of hammering out the beat to Ghost Riders in the Sky. And in 20 minutes, I wrote that whole song. And I, that's why I went down to... Uh, Los Angeles and recorded it in that small studio and took them the, the copies of it and just walked away and said, thank you, guys. It's a, a musical thank you card for having me on the show. All the rest of this happened without my knowledge because Boone and, and Rolf took that over to CBS and, and changed my entire life. I mean, I was 23 years old, and all of a sudden, overnight, I'm on the number two television show in the world with this song that I had just not ever thought of as a theme song, but strictly for them, a personal, personal, personal thing. But there it was, and there it is, and 52 years later, we're still doing it. And we're so glad it's still out there. I'm glad it's still out there. (laughs) It's a a financial pleasure to have it out there. 
But more than that, I've been so vehement through the years about the fact that the kids today don't have the great television westerns and the, that western image, the, the good guy and the, and the bad guy, to grow up with. And my that's probably number one statement that I make on my concerts and stage shows all over the world is that if the kids today had the same heroes that we grew up with, with Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and Rex Allen and Tex Ritter and all the cowboy heroes, there probably wouldn't be a gangbanger out there today. They do not have these heroes, and consequently they've gone to the anti-hero and they've gone the other way. And we've got the gangbangers, and we've got these bad kids out there. Not that all kids are bad, but they just don't have the moral background and upstanding individuals to look up to like we had when we were kids and young people. So I'm kind of vehement about this thing and, and saying that probably the greatest era that America had in my lifetime was that era of the Westerns, starting with the Saturday afternoon Westerns with uh, the cowboy stars I've just mentioned from the 30s and 40s on into the 50s, the advent of television, and on into 1962, when Sean Connery came along with James Bond and ruined the whole thing. <laughs> but what a great era it was previous to that. You know, I hadn't ever thought of James Bond in those terms before. James Bond ended the Western television era. His footprint covered everything. Yeah, yeah, and it was, I love Connery. Connery is my favorite Bond of all time, and I, I just ate those shows up like everybody else did. The unfortunate part of it was, it was kind of like when Elvis Presley hit so big, the rockabilly thing and Elvis's image thing and became rock and roll killed country music for a great, great while. And of course, that was another great part of my life. It put a lot of people on the Grand Ole Opry almost out of work, you know, traditional, yeah. wonderful artists and so forth, and older artists, as this youth movement moved toward Elvis Presley, he did to the country music business what Sean Connery did to Western movies. The era changed to the spy movies with Bond, and of course, uh, Sam Rolfe, who, by the way, also created, uh, created Have Gun Will Travel, also created the show called The Man from Uncle with uh, Robert Vaughn and David McCallum. And it was a very, very big hit show. So Sam did another one that was a, a big hit and in the genre that was currently popular. But I'm sad that uh, a lot of people have not been able to enjoy the Westerns through the years that we enjoyed when we were kids growing up. I just think it would be a different society today had that been available to kids today. You had heroes. I want to invite our listeners to call in with questions and comments to you. We're talking with Johnny Western, who um, I'm going to say among 12,328 other things, wrote and sang the Ballad of Paladin for Have Gun, Will Travel. You toured with Gene Autry, you toured with Johnny Cash, and if you can keep up with him, he's still doing concerts out there. And we're going to ask him where you can find him. We're at 714-545-2071. 714-545-2071. Before I get into Gene Autry, which I think is, I, you've got such a wonderful story about that, I just want to finish up that in addition to the recording work that you've done, singing, co-writing themes, uh, The Rebel and Bonanza, what were your roles in those two songs. Well, as I said, I spent a lot of time at Paramount Pictures and <clears throat> with the Johnny Cash Show headquartering on the West Coast, and Johnny and I were both recording for Columbia Records. Once I had the Have Gone Will Travel theme on in 1958, and Johnny had just moved out to the West Coast, I said he bought Johnny Carson's house when Johnny and Ed McMahon went to New York to do The Tonight Show. He put his house up for sale and Cash bought it. 
So putting the road show together, we were out there doing it, and uh, Have Gone Will Travel filmed at Paramount Studios. They put out the call because Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, who were wonderful movie songwriters, they wrote such great songs like True Love for Bing Crosby, and of course the Christmas classic Silver Bells, which everybody can sing. These were magnificent writers. But when they wrote the theme for Bonanza, they had the lousiest set of lyrics you had ever heard in your life. And they were not commercial, they weren't popular, and they did not use them on the show. So we got a call from Paramount. Johnny called me about 9 o'clock one morning and said, can you come over? He said, we're going to work with Livingston and Evans and, and redo the, the Bonanza thing, give it a new set of lyrics. So in about 10 hours' time, we did that, and then went over to Columbia Studios and uh, recorded it in Hollywood, and it was a successful hit record for Cash on Columbia Records. I, I started playing guitar on all of his records right around that time. In 1959, he decided not to play guitar while he was singing on records, just concentrate on the lyrics. So he asked me to start playing guitar on his records. And I did. And over a period of time, uh, Patricia, I did 71 singles with him for Columbia Records and five different albums, including the first concept album called Ride This Train and things like that. So it was a wonderful time to not only be with him on the road and performing with him on the road, but to doing these things on the recording sessions and later duplicating a lot of those songs on the road that we did in the studio. So when all this came down the line, there was Bonanza, and then uh, we did the lyrics for that. And then the producers of uh, Johnny Yuma, The Rebel, starring the late Nick Adams, who was only 36 years old when he died. Nick was way too young when he passed away. Uh, they had a theme song that was kind of uh, schmaltzy, I guess you'd say, and it didn't have much power to it. So Johnny and I completely rewrote that thing and rearranged it and made a commercial recording of it, which turned out to be the first recording with him that I ever did. It was on the 14th day of uh, August of 1959. And uh, on that particular recording sessions, you know, a lot, of, maybe a lot of your listeners out there don't know that Christmas songs are recorded usually several months in advance. So this was the 14th of August, 1959, and we did a uh, a wonderful recording of the Little Drummer Boy, which has become, a, of course, a great Christmas classic. At the same time, along with four or five other songs on that first session, so it was a, a great time, and everything was just kind of going our way. And it all really came through Paramount Studios, which is where The Rebel was filmed, and also Bonanza, and of course, Have Gun Will Travel. Pretty much all tied up with Paramount Studios. Do you think before we finish up tonight, you could give us just a little taste of Johnny Yuma? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what. <clears throat> Living in Arizona, <laughs> you might might be a pill. I'd have just a touch of laryngitis. It has been so dry, with exception of the, of the tornadoes you might have read about we did. lately. We got the strangest thing in Arizona. We had a series of tornadoes that never, never hit Arizona, and they were quite severe. Now, up in Kansas and Wichita, when I lived there for 25 years, we got them every other week in Tornado Alley, but down here was a very unusual thing. And about this time of night, I get just a little bit hoarse around the edges and so forth, so I don't know how wonderful that would be. Okay, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. It was um, kind uh, we're, of... We're not done yet, so okay. let's, let's see what the courage factor is as we go along here. <laughs> okay, that'll be great. Okay. I know a little bit about the humidity in, or lack of it in Arizona. Um, you know, if you, if you don't drink enough, you can just dry up and blow away. I had that problem last weekend, as a matter of fact, at the Rex Allen days in, in Wilcox, Arizona, and up in the hospital with heat stroke. Whoa! Uh, they had a, have a massive parade there, and this is the 
seventh or eighth time that I've done that since Rex Allen Sr. brought me there in 1964. And uh, I was number 38 in the parade and had a beautiful 55 Chevy convertible completely restored to ride in. But the sun was over 100 degrees, and I'm standing out there for 35 or 40 minutes waiting for the parade to start. Wow. And the next thing I knew, I was down, sitting down, and my head was just spinning around. I had just a touch of heat stroke. They took me to the hospital there in Wilcox, which wasn't that far away, and just rehydrated me and yeah. checked out all the vitals and so forth to make sure that that's what it was. And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I did my matinee show in the nice air-conditioned auditorium like nothing had ever happened. And again at 7.30 for the evening concert, which were both sold out. It was wonderful. But that particular thing, yeah, it just can hit you. And it all comes from dehydration. So if we have a lot of listeners out along the line on your show that, like me, are you know, in your mid-70s, I'll be 76 now coming up the end of this month on October 28th. But one of the things that hits all of us as we get older is dehydration. We just don't realize that we're not drinking enough water. And you must keep hydrated. And so many people go to the hospital, not with heat stroke, but with just plain dehydration. Mm -hmm. So as a word to the wise, and I found out how unwise I was uh, a week ago today by ending up in the hospital, I had not hydrated myself enough to keep going. So everybody get on board with the hydration, and I think we'll all be fine. It can sneak up on you. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not something that, that jumps up and down and you're going to notice it. It just kind of sneaks up and suddenly you're just not with it. Well, that's exactly what happened. I was standing there and they had a, one of those big magnetic signs with my name on it about three feet high on the side of that convertible. Mm -hmm. And as I was looking at that, uh, it started kind of fading in and out. Uh -oh. And I had had that happen once again, once uh, about eight, nine years ago at a fairgrounds on a very hot day up in Iowa on a concert. So I kind of knew what was coming on, and I sat down before I fell down. But they called EMS and got them right over there and got me rehydrated. And like I said, about an hour later, it's like, like it never happened. <laughs> but it was you. not a fun experience, believe me. No, but I think you're the person they have the word trooper for. Wow. Well, I don't know about that, but at least I knew what it was this time. You know, So yeah. I was ready for it, and I said, yeah. you know, let's, and, let's and get rehydrated here. Uh -huh. Get as you much fluid in me as possible. Sure. And then they started pumping me up with Gatorade, which is a good thing for that time because of the glucose flight. Factor, uh -huh. you know. Yeah. Wow. Okay, I'm almost to the end of my list, and then we can start talking. <laughs> well, you Carnegie, go for it. Uh, it's Carnegie, your show. Yeah. Oh gosh, no, this is your show. Carnegie Hall three times. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes. Um, according to their records, I'm the only cowboy singer in the world who's ever played Carnegie Hall three times. First time was a sold-out concert on May the 10th of 1962 with Johnny Cash. It was a very, very special concert. It was sold out a couple of weeks in advance. And then came back in 2003 with a presentation to the Great American Cowboy, which also featured Roy Rogers Jr. and the great sons of the San Joaquin group and the Prairie Rose Wranglers from Wichita, Kansas, which is a great group, and uh, Joni Harms and a bunch of wonderful Western entertainers. The first all-Western music show to ever play Carnegie Hall. And it was so successful and sold out that night that before we left the building, they rebooked the show for the next year and came back in 2004 and sold it out again, the next time with Riders in the Sky and again uh, Roy Rogers Jr. and all the aforementioned people, and we just had a wonderful time playing Carnegie Hall. But it turned out that by the time I played it three times, I was the only one 
in Western music who had ever played it three times. So it's kind of a nice honor. You, you have enough um, check marks next to your name. It's just blowing me away here. Seven Halls of Fame, if I counted correctly. No, you missed three. <laughs> there, are, there are ten, and I'm very grateful for that. You know, I kind of got the feeling that if you hang around long enough and you outlive everybody else, they're going to give you some awards. But I've been very, very lucky with the Hall of Fame awards. And with my 25 years in, in radio playing country music, I had actually started in Minnesota in 1949. And so I had a, a real you know background and basis for that. But the Country Music Hall of Fame, Disc Jockey Hall of Fame in Nashville honored me in 2000 with the Hall of Fame Award, which is an absolute treasure. It's a very, very, very exclusive club to belong to, and I feel very greatly honored because of, of all who have been before me and those who have followed since 2000. And 2001 was probably the epitome of everything that I've ever done or will do because the, the Western Music Hall of Fame Award came along, and it was strange. In 2000, the year that I got in the Country Music Disc Jockey Hall of Fame, I was the presenter for Frankie Lane in the Western Music Hall of Fame. He was given that award for his great works like, of course, Rawhide and the High Noon and all the theme songs that he had done, A Gunfight at the OK Corral with Kirk Douglas and Burke Lancaster, all these great Dimitri Tiomkin songs that he had done, 310 to Yuma. And Frankie was a wonderful entertainer, also on Columbia Records. only got to work with him one time in my life, but I was so proud to be his presenter for his award and but without my knowledge I was the next guy in line the next year in 2001 it was me so those two awards I think top the list of the 10 halls of fame although I certainly don't diminish any of them they're, they're wonderful to to have these hall of fame awards the national old-time country music hall of fame was awarded up in Iowa every year and I got that one in 2001 also so I guess like I said if you hang around long enough maybe they're going to give you a few of these things well, gosh, I really thought I did a great job with my homework when I came up with seven, and I apologize. I should have, I should have dug a little bit further. Well, sometimes yeah. the uh, the Google folks don't get them all. But, you know, <laughs> there there were some, of course, locally and regionally and so forth that maybe didn't mean, mean that much to those folks, but it meant a lot to me. The Wichita Professional Broadcasting Association gave me the the Hall of Fame award, which there are more than 20 radio and television stations in Wichita, and to receive that Hall of Fame award back in 2001 was absolutely wonderful i mean to be that's that's one of your peers you know people hear you on the air every day and they gave it to me instead of somebody else that particular year and you have to take that and say thank you thank you thank you well maybe it doesn't mean that much how much that's going to play in peoria as they say but in wichita in the state of kansas it was an absolutely huge award and a couple of years later the kansas cowboy hall of fame out in dodge city the world famous dodge city made me a member of the kansas cowboy hall of fame which was a wonderful thing and then coming from minnesota and a strange place for a cowboy singer to come from, but not necessarily. It just turned out that it should be a wonderful thing when, uh, about three years ago, I was voted into the Country and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a combo in uh, in Minnesota, in their Hall of Fame, which meant a lot to me because that's where I was born and raised, and to have that honor is, is just a great, great thing. I'm out of breath. You're doing all the talking, and I'm out of breath here. Well, you have the James Brothers up there, so... That kind of gave you a head start, I guess. Living with the Jesse James legend, yes, in Northfield, Minnesota, was something else. As I said, I had horses all my life, and there's a wonderful celebration every September in Northfield. Now, Northfield, at the time I grew up, was only 5,000 people. They have two wonderful colleges up there, Carlson College on the east side of town, which is a liberal arts college, and St. Olaf Lutheran College on the west side, which has the world-famous St. Olaf Choir 
probably the finest college choir in the world today, and in many, many past years. So the other thing that Northfield was famous for was the Jesse James Raid. And growing up with that legend, and then having horses, eventually being a member of the Saddle Club, they decided to stage and recreate the Jesse James Bank Raid with the, the younger brothers and all like that. And I got to play the youngest of the younger brothers a couple, two or three times during that time. Well, now Northfield through the years has grown up to be about 19,000 people. It's really kind of a bedroom community for Minneapolis and St. Paul. And the Jesse James Day is now 50,000 people a day for three days in a row in town when it plays in September. So I've been the Grand Marshal of that two or three times. They brought me back there to, to ride in the parade. And uh, it's a great honor to be honored by people in your hometown. But growing up with that legend of Jesse James and the Younger Brothers certainly had a huge influence on top of the Gene Autry influence that I already had. It gave that little touch of the, of the Old West to an area that really wasn't the Old West. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Gene Autry was your idol. Absolutely. I, I know that because I've heard you say it in so many different places. I've been out there trying to do my homework, and by golly, Gene Autry was your idol. I wouldn't tell even be in this business, Patricia, without Gene Autry. Not from the day I was five years old, when I took one look at him up on the screen in a movie called Guns and Guitars, and looked at that guy with the white hat, the silver-mounted saddle, that beautiful horse, playing their guitar and singing those songs and said, that's what I want to be. I either want to be him or I want to be exactly like him. And I never looked back from that day. There was never a day from then on that I wanted to be anything else but a singing cowboy like Gene Autry. I certainly was in the wrong place in the world to do that at that time when I was five years old, but I never relinquished that dream. And 16 years later, he put me under contract and took me all over the world with him. Now, who gets to work for your hero and your idol? Well, I did and maintained that friendship till the day he passed away in the, well, he was 91 years old in 1998. Would you tell about your first meeting of Gene Autry? Absolutely. He was coming through the area, and I had my local radio show there in, uh, in Northfield on KDHL Radio, which is still a, a dominant station in that part of southern Minnesota, and uh, got in touch with his people and had him as a guest on my radio show. And he was very, very kind to me, knew... I guess my heart was on my sleeve just being around him. And he kind of said, well, kid, you said you're doing a good job. And I was, you know, 15 years old. He said, uh, ever come to Hollywood, look me up. But then, a few years later, he came through the area again, just before I was getting ready to leave Minnesota and take a run at Hollywood. And he had his, uh, his road show out. And I had, him, I had the television show by that time. And I had him as a guest on my TV show. Then he really said, if you ever come to Hollywood, look me up. I'll try to help you. Well... Of course, that was about all the pat on the back that I needed. So hat in hand, and <laughs> new baby, three months old, a Buick convertible that I bought from my TV sponsor, a bright red one. I took a chance and took a flyer and went to Hollywood, California on the last day of December of 1954. And by the beginning of 1955, I had seen Gene two or three times, but it seemed like the timing just wasn't ready. But I just stayed in touch with him and would go down to the studio and watch the, the various series that he produced other than the Gene Autry show being filmed, the Annie Oakley show, the Range Rider with the great movie stuntman Jock Mahoney and Dick Jones. And uh, then Dick Jones had his own TV series called Buffalo Bill Jr. All these things were going on in the meantime, and I was trying to get something going in Los Angeles and having a tough time took a regular job in an ink factory that made all those pretty inks that you see on 
your boxes of Tide and Fab and <laughs> Does and all those kind of soaps that the housewives have in their homes, that was just to make a living because I did have a wife and a three-month-old baby when I arrived out there. But stayed in touch with Jean, and then, you know, it was just kind of a, a lapse. And we got to jump forward to 1956. Dick Jones, who had starred in two series, as I said, for Gene, the, the Range Rider and Buffalo Bill Jr., called me one day and he said, he said, Betty and I are celebrating our, wed uh, our eighth wedding anniversary next Monday night, and we're going to have a few folks over at Leonard Eiler's Ranch on the outside of town. I said, would you come out and sing a few songs for the folks? And I said, well, I'd love to. You know, your anniversary? And sure. So what Dick didn't tell me was when I got out there, the folks were Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, the Sons of the Pioneers and all their wives, movie star Susan Hayward, who was going through a bad divorce at that time and was being counseled by Reverend Leonard Eilers, who ranch, whose ranch that was, and Mr. and Mrs. Gene Autry were there. And I was the entertainment, you know? <laughs> just So I thought, well, i got to take the bull by the horns. So I went up and did my 20, 20 minute, 22 minutes, I think, something like that, and started to leave the stage, and Roy Rogers jumped up there, and he said, hey, kid, can I borrow your guitar? I knew him since I was like 14 years old also, but not as well as I knew Gene. I said, well, sure, Roy. And so I started leaving, and he said, no, he said, you sing good. Stay up here with me. So I'll get the sons of the pioneers up here. You've worked with them before. We'll just sing a bunch of songs. And we did about another 20 minutes up there. It was wonderful. But nobody offered me a job that night. Everybody kind of shook hands and went home. Two weeks later, I got a call from Dick Jones, and he said, hey, you're not going to believe this. He said, Gene Autry just called me, and he wants to, to talk to you about coming to work for him. The great Johnny Bond, who had been with Gene for three decades, his personal guitarist and featured singer on his stage show and radio show, the Melody Ranch Show, on CBS, was leaving. After, th after 30 years, he didn't want to travel on the road anymore, and he wanted to stay in Los Angeles and produce a TV show called Town Hall Party, featuring a lot of great country stars on the weekends. And he just was tired of traveling, and that job came open, and through that little deal out there, Autry remembered what I had done, and when I went down to see him the next day, he hired me, and that was, that was it. And I'm saying, who gets to work for your hero? You know, how did this happen? We're... How lucky can one guy be? I mean, every dream that I'd ever had in the world was right there because I wanted to be him or just exactly like him, and he was going to take me with him everywhere in this world until he decided to hang it up. Did you work the Melody Ranch show? I did not work the Melody Ranch show. It was over. Mm. Gene had finished the last of the shows when I got there. He'd also finished the last of his TV shows, the Gene Autry Half Hour shows. The one regret that I had, Patricia, of the whole thing was I never got to make a movie with Gene, nor did I get a chance to to do the radio show because both of them were over by the time he put me under contract. However, as I said, he put me with his agent and the agent got me all the other TV and movie jobs that I had and uh, it was a wonderful thing. When did you tell him or when did he realize how much of a hero and an idol he was to you? From day one. The very first time that he came on my radio show, I guess, as I said, my heart was probably on my sleeve. I... Uh, <laughs> hope I wasn't gushing. I don't think I was. But I pretty much told him that, uh, you know, he was he was my everything. I would not be in the business without him. And that was something that became a, a kind of a little deal between he and I until the very day that he passed away. I always felt like there never would have been a me in show business without Gene Autry. I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. So at the end of every Christmas card that I ever sent to him for every single year that we knew each other until he passed away in 98, I would say, P.S., by the way, Gene, 
without you, there never would have been a me. And he always got a kick out of that. So I guess I pretty much laid it out at that very first time because he did say, you ever come to Hollywood, look me up, I'll try to give you a helping hand. And he meant it. And eventually he did. It sounds like from what you're saying now and from what I have heard that he truly was a man of his word. Is that correct? Let me tell you about Gene Autry. He had people working with him for more than 40 years that never had a contract. I did not have a contract with Gene Autry. Gene Autry's handshake was his contract. Now let me tell you, Patricia, and all of our listeners out there, wherever you may be, Gene Autry's handshake and his word was better than anybody else's piece of paper drawn up by I don't care how many Philadelphia lawyers. His word was his bond. And believe me, it was solid gold. Absolutely solid gold. He never said anything that he didn't believe. He did not back out on any deals. There was no no uh, backing up CG. I don't remember saying that, or I don't remember doing this. When Gene Autry told you something, that was it. And he had this fantastic memory. I call it a steel trap memory. If Gene Autry told you that he would meet you on the corner of 42nd and Broadway in New York at 10 o'clock in the morning on December 11th, at 11 o'clock in the morning, or 10 o'clock in the morning, whatever, you better be there because he's going to be there. I don't care whether six months in advance, a year in advance, a year and a half in advance, if he tells you he's going to pull up alongside in his town car on that corner, you better be there because he's going to be there. That's how strong his word was. Most remarkable person. Did that, uh, did that part of him, that, that character and that integrity, influence his performances and the people he worked with? Absolutely. Tell me how. He was magic. Gene had a magical thing about him that, of course, <clears throat> you know, kids and people loved Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Gene was the first. He was not the first, 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 first singing cowboy ever. There have been a few attempts early on in the movies with people that didn't make it, but he was the first successful singing cowboy. And the success came from this great common touch that he had. Gene Autry could dine with the President of the United States one day, and two days later be having a sandwich with a guy that lived in a shotgun shack in Arkansas, and treat them both exactly the same. People gravitated toward him because he was so real and so natural, and he had no bias of whatever that I ever saw in his lifetime as to people's stations in life. You know, he came from extremely poor circumstances, became one of the richest men in all of show business, died a multi-multi-multi-multi-multi-multi-millionaire, and did all those wonderful things on screen, television, radio, records, personal appearances, in business, of course, a master businessman, founder of the California Angels baseball team, which he absolutely adored, and all that stuff. And all this was done with this constant feeling like he was the guy next door. People could identify with him. They, they loved the quality of his voice. They loved something very soothing about the voice. If you were a, an older person, you, you identified with that thing. It wasn't making your ears bleed like the rock and roll concerts of today. Uh, they, they loved the songs that he did, whether they were cowboy songs or love songs. They loved the image that he created. And the kids, of course, adored him, as I did, and wanted to be just like him, which was the great, 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 great influence. But I want to tell you something, Patricia, and again to all of your wonderful listeners out there. In his heyday, which was basically the end of the 30s, into the 40s, and the very beginning of the 50s, but certainly in the 40s, he was probably the most famous man in the world. I made a TV special for the Encore Western Channel a couple, two, three years ago, and I was in it quite prominently talking about my life with him, and one of the things that I said was that 
in his time, he was better known than most of the great names throughout the world. More people in the world knew who Gene Autry was than knew who Franklin Delano Roosevelt was. And this is a fact and for sure. He was probably, in his time, the most famous man in the world. And you know, he just took it all with a grain of salt. He just told me one time, he said, Well, kid, he was, I was the youngest person on the show, and he called me the kid. He said, Well, kid, you got to remember this. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. And that's about as common as you can get. You know, the common denominator was something that people saw in Gene. They loved his looks. They loved the horses. They loved the silver saddles. They loved the guitar. They loved the songs. But they, most of all, they loved him. There was just something about him that came across the footlights and the personal appearance or on the screen that was absolute magic. It just really was. Very few people ever in show business have that kind of, a, of, a, of a, an overwhelming uh, appearance to the place where people just fall in love with the guy. You know, uh -huh. there it was. When you were touring with him, did he tour with you, with the band, with the, or did he travel separately? This was so lucky. You know, Gene's quite well known for being a pilot in World War II. He took a couple of years out of his career, enlisted in the Air Force, and he flew transport planes over the Himalayas into Burma and places like that, some pretty dangerous territory in the world, including, of course, Mount Everest is over there, and you don't want to hit that real hard, you know, in the middle of the night. But he was a wonderful pilot, always had this great thing for aviation, and he flew his own plane, had a wonderful pilot, co-pilot that went with him everywhere named Herb Green, who became his road manager also. So I got to fly with him in that uh, Beechcraft plane as his guest on many occasions. Now, he had a big bus, of course, for the show because there were a lot of people in the show, a lot of people needed to, for the setups and so forth. Nothing like today with the multiple buses and, uh, and big sound trucks and all that kind of stuff. But there was a truck that carried Champion and Little Champion for the horse act and his trainer, Jay Berry, and his uh, assistant trainer, Scotty Brown. And then, of course, the Cass County Boys, a great backup group that were in so many movies with Gene and myself. And then Merle Travis was a great, great friend of Gene's, great personal friend, a wonderful musician, and the man who wrote 16 tons for Tennessee Ernie Ford and so many things that he became a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame many years ago on his own. Great songwriter, great singer, performer, cartoonist. Travis could do it all. Autry just loved him. So that was our basic stage show, along with special guest Gail Davis, who portrayed Annie Oakley on the Annie Oakley TV show and was under contract to Gene. So we went out for 30, 40 days at a time. That was pretty much our show. And we traveled together separately, in and out and so forth. But my, my uh, probably greatest memories are getting on that airplane with him and, and flying to some of those dates. It was absolutely wonderful to be flying with the, the most famous cowboy in the world. Remarkable. When you were on site at a venue and a, a concert lasted more than a single night or a single day, did you have an opportunity to socialize with each other and with Gene Autry? All the time. He really? loved nostalgia. Gene, as I said, had this, this actually steel trap mind, and he loved talking about things that happened in his career like 30 years before. Now, you realize this is, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, this was 1956 and 1957 when I was with Gene. I was just turning 21 years old, so I was fascinated with all these stories of everybody that he knew in the world, the performers that he'd worked with in every field of, of uh, endeavor. I mean, he worked with George Burns and Gracie Allen. He worked with Milton Berle. You know, not just the cowboys. Of course, he worked with every cowboy star and every country music star in the world. But all the things that he did and did so very well carried over one to the other to the other to the other. And I was fascinated by those stories and the fact that he could remember 
the most minute details of what town it was in, whether it was Milwaukee or whether it was Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, or a tour up in Canada. Now, speaking of Canada, that was the biggest crowd that I ever played to in my life. We had started out on the 4th of July, 1956, when my contract started, that handshake contract, with the Colorado State Fair and Rodeo in Pueblo, Colorado. 12,000 seats, two shows a day, and packed it. So in three days' time, that's 36,000 people. We had two and a half days to get to Toronto, Canada for the Canadian National Exhibition, which is like the World's Fair. And that was 14 days up there. And Patricia, it was incredible. It was the very same show with all the people I'm talking about up there in Canada. And we played to three million people in 14 days. Every day was Woodstock. As far as your eye could see from that big giant stage, you had to physically turn your head to the left or the right to see the end of the people. Canada at that time had 26 million people the whole country of Canada. And the three million of them came to the Gene Autry show. So, you know, there you go. It's, I mean, it's just, you think Garth Brooks has drawn big crowds here in the States. Uh, the big crowds, and I'll, I will never see this again in my lifetime, were with working with Gene Autry. That is absolutely incredible. It was incredible. It was incredible. It, it was beyond belief. And yet, as I said, he took it like a grain of salt. He would have, when we were in Chicago for... 10 days for the Chicago uh, Silver Spur Rodeo. But the first year that Richard Daly Sr. had been elected the mayor of Chicago, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. of course became very famous as the kind of the, the lord of Chicago, if you will. <laughs> he ran Chicago for so many years. <laughs> and his son, of course, took over and uh -huh. decided he's not going to run again now. So looks like Rahm Emanuel is leaving Obama to, to, to give that a shot. But you realize how powerful the mayor of Chicago was. And he came hat in hand to meet Gene Autry at the rodeo. It was just a, you know, an amazing thing to, to be around those kind of people. One of the neatest things that happened when we were in Chicago also was that a kind of a tall, gangly guy, very nervous guy, not, not easy to be around, he was so darn nervous, but what a talent, was the great Johnny Marks came backstage to, to see Gene, and of course Gene introduced me, and Johnny Marks of course wrote Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, as well as many, many other Christmas songs, a lot of which were recorded by Gene. And you realize that Rudolph became the second biggest selling single record in the history of the recording industry behind Bing Crosby's White Christmas. So here's this guy in this flamboyant red sport coat, kind of bouncing around like a burp in a bottle, and it's the great Johnny Marks. And so by being out there with Gene, I met everybody in the world. I mean, anybody who was important, I met him, thanks to Gene Autry. You're remarkable. No, he was remarkable, and I got, I got to go along for the ride, you know, but I took all these things in, and I said, you know, if I get a shot to do, to continue on in what I call the big time, mm -hmm. this is the way I'm going to treat people. I was watching, we called him the boss. Everybody on the show called him the boss. Uh, I just felt like this is the epitome of how to treat people. As I said, he could dine with the president one day, whether it was Dwight Eisenhower or whoever the president might be at the time, and then visit with the most common individual who came down the pike that had spent his 79 cents to buy a Gene Autry record somewhere along the line, and he treated everybody the same. He was just this great common denominator, and it wasn't a fake. He wasn't putting it on that, well, I'll just give this, I'll throw this poor boy a bone, you know. Uh -huh. Heck, I had dinner with the president yesterday. I'll just make this guy feel good. That uh -huh. wasn't the way he was. He just really loved people, and people adored him. What you saw is what you got. That was just exactly it. Now, wow. I do want to tell you, and to all of your listeners, there were two sides to Gene. He had the professional side, 
with his show business thing and then a completely different persona as a businessman. You know, and I think most people are aware that he's he became one of the most successful businessmen in our not just show business, probably in America. And the way he did that, he had this great, great, great ability to put numbers together. He could do it in his head. And he knew where every dollar was invested. And he hired the best people for all of his radio and TV stations, all of his ranches, all of his newspapers, all of his hotels for the years he was in the hotel business, oil wells, oil fields, whatever he was invested into, he, he got the best people that he could and made those things work. When he founded the California Angels baseball team in 1961, of course, starting with a brand new team, they had a lot of ups and downs, mostly downs, but he hired the best people he could to make a, a successful ball club out of that. And financially successful, it certainly was. He didn't get his World Series pennant until after he passed away. But everybody in the world wanted Gene to get that because he wanted it so bad, and he worked so very, very hard to make that happen. So he had this great business persona, and then, of course, he had the show business thing, which was kind of where my heart was. I've never been that much of a businessman like he was. I did tell him one time, I said, Gene, he, by the way, he was a great, great great audience for a joke. He loved to tell jokes and he loved to listen to them. And he had this infectious laugh. Sometimes he laughed till he had tears rolling down his eyes. And I got him one time. I was driving him in his station wagon. I said, Gene, when it comes to money, everybody says you've got the Midas touch, the King Midas touch. But everything you touch turns to gold. I said, you know, everything I touch calls the cops. And he just broke up. And I thought he was never going to stop laughing. You know, it was just a throwaway remark. I don't know where I stole that line, but it was, he never heard it and got to him. And this is the kind of relationship that we had. But it was the kind of a man that he was also. Yeah. Great businessman and a great, great showman and entertainer. I'd like to hop backwards for just a second. You talked about 10 days in Chicago, 14 mm -hmm. days in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, doing 14 days in a row mm -hmm. is over the top. I mean, that is about as demanding a schedule as you could possibly have. Yes, playing for that many people, but you have to realize what a charge you got by going out there and seeing these throngs of people and getting to meet them after the show and finding that they had come from, say, the Maritimes, which is way, way out east, you know, past Nova Scotia and out in the middle of the ocean there with Newfoundland and places like that, and then from Victoria and Vancouver, British Columbia, which is as far to the Pacific Ocean as you can be without being in the Pacific Ocean, and these people had traveled all those miles to see Gene Autry, to see that show, and to be there, you know, it was like every day was Woodstock, as I said, it was just an incredible time. And the, the battery stayed charged the whole time. I mean, that, that one I didn't want to end. I thought I would never see the end of the people. And, of course, by far the biggest crowds that I've ever played to in my life before or since. And, and what a great memory. But what a great, great chance because we did have all that time to talk backstage and a couple of times when he just wanted, he loved to sing. Gene just really loved to sing. And he had quit playing guitar, and that's why Johnny Bond had been with him for 30 years. So I played a lot of those songs that Johnny had played with him. And, you know, one time he just asked me to, to sit down and, and play some guitar for him so he could sing some songs in his dressing room there in Toronto. And I'm thinking, you know, it's just me and him. Those people out front would give a million dollars to hear him sing these songs, and I'll, the only person he's singing to is me because he just personally liked to sing those songs. So with that in mind, I'm saying this is as good as it gets. It's never going to get better than this, and it did not. And it didn't. No. 
I played uh, a huge crowds on the Johnny Cash show, and Johnny was hotter than a cap pistol on the 4th of July, and we had great auditorium show. There were no Tuesday nights anywhere. Every night was Saturday night. If we were in Topeka on a Tuesday night, the place was packed. If we were in Milwaukee on Sunday afternoon, the place was packed. If we were in Des Moines, Iowa for three shows on Sunday for the great promoter and disc jockey up there, Smokey Smith, the place was packed. You know, it was just, it was like being on Grease Kids. There just were no empty seats anywhere. And that was a lot of fun. But it it would take three shows on the on the cash show because we're playing mostly auditoriums to make up for one day of crowds in in, in Toronto. I'm just saying, you can't see my mouth open here with what...